I could sing another 30 minutes worshiping God. But God has laid a passage of scripture on my heart. If we sang another 30 minutes, there would be no scripture. We could sing it all day, and I'm not saying I'm really opposed to that. And maybe we will have an event in the near future on a Sunday morning. You know, we've never had a Sunday morning of just praise and worship. And after this morning, I am seriously rethinking that, wondering why we haven't. And we might do that in the near future, but it's not today. So please get out your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. We are almost done with this book. Man, it has been a long journey going through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. I actually don't remember when we started. David, I'm going to switch over to my lapel mic now. All right, thank you. i got to turn that off. All right, so it's been a long time, and, uh, you know, I don't remember when we started 1 Corinthians, but I am very grateful the journey that we've had through both of these two books. I have seen the heart of of Christ as it was displayed through the heart of Christ's servant, the Apostle Paul. I have seen how God would have us respond to a people who have a love for God. They have a form of love for God. It is not lost completely. They have not completely rejected him, completely walked away from him, but they have been distracted. The Corinthian church lost sight of what was important while still recognizing God was on the throne. So the Apostle Paul was not writing a letter to a completely reprobate body of believers. This is not the book of Revelation where God is saying, fix this or I'm shutting you down. They were not so far gone that they could not come back quickly. And we see the heart of the Apostle Paul given sincerely to the Corinthian church. And between the first and second books, we see the Corinthian church responding to that heart. Guys, I'm going to go back to this mic. We got a lot of ringing. We'll get that fixed another time. We see the the heart of the people responding to the heart of the Apostle Paul. What a fantastic lesson for us. I mean, look, the sins of the Corinthian church were not small. They were not minor. There were some major issues going on. And I think a lot of people would say there is nothing you could say to these people to turn them back to the way of Christ. Well, obviously, you'd be wrong. (laughs) They came back. But I'm not sure... It was so much what was said as it was how it was said and who was the one saying it. See, the Apostle Paul was a man known by the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul was a man loved by the Corinthian church. And the Apostle Paul was a man who loved the church. And because he loved the church, the church loved him. And because there was love between them, the manner in which the Apostle Paul corrected them, was received well. And so, we come to the second book of Corinthians where the Apostle Paul commends them for their correction, commends them for their refocus on God, but it was not complete. The, uh, the Corinthian church in the first book was mostly uh, corrected for ignoring sin in the church and allowing favoritism to uh, rise up. Even in the Lord's Supper, the wealthy ate at their own table and they ate a banquet during the Lord's Supper while the poor had a meager amount of food. And the Apostle Paul corrects them in two ways. He says, first of all, don't be separating yourself during the Lord's Supper by wealth, by status, right? You're all one. Second of all, the Lord's Supper is not a banquet. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of what Christ did for you. He says, if you're hungry, eat before you come to church. Don't eat at church in front of those who don't have food. So there were, there were issues. And then the second book of Corinthians, we find it seems new issues had arisen. These new issues were in the form of leaders, false prophets, 
prideful men and very likely prideful women who stood up within the church and said, forget about Paul, we'll take it from here. Don't worry, we're, you know, Paul loves you, but where is Paul? Paul claims to know truth, but he's not here to tell it to you. We're here, and we'll tell you everything you need to know. And the Apostle Paul writes his second letter, dealing with other issues, but towards the end, hitting pretty hard these leaders who were taking the church of God away from God and towards men. So now we find chapter 13. Let's pick up now in our uh, text here. I'm sorry, chapter 11. My bad, we're not that far. Chapter 11. I apologize. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's look up here at verse 1. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly. And indeed, bear with me. All right, so he has been saying for a chapter and a half now, it's foolish to compare, but I'm going to compare because that's all you guys listen to is comparison, and you only listen to people who you think are better than other people. So this last chapter, he spent the whole chapter saying, I am better than them, and I'm going to compare myself foolishly so you'll listen to me. But by the end of the chapter, he says, the point of you listening to me in my foolishness and the point of me comparing myself to them and showing you that I am the better one to listen to is now to point you to Christ. So he did that in chapter 10. Now in chapter 11, he says, all right, bear with me a little longer. Verse 2, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may with, uh, with him, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. All right, so the apostle Paul He is reminding them that I'm the one that introduced you to Christ. And remember, my goal was to bring you to Christ, not to to bring you to me. All right? Now, the last time we were together, we looked at the following verses. We dealt with those, how the Apostle Paul was trying to to show them that Christ is the answer. Now, let's pick up at today's text in verse 16. I say again, let no man think me a fool, if otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. Verse 17. That which I speak... I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. Now, you know what? I apologize. I'm reading this text, and I'm thinking, wait a second. This text I've already preached on. And uh, the verses that I'm at. So I apologize. I actually have the wrong verses here. So guys, if you could just get me to my first slide, and I'll pick up from where they're at there. Thank you. Yes, as I'm reading this, thinking, wait a second, we've covered this. And it's been a week. I had a week off from uh, preaching, and look what happened. I just fell apart as I had a week off from preaching. This morning's title is, um, this morning's title is Let's Give. And uh, the reason I titled it this is, is I believe that the Apostle Paul was a whole lot less concerned about what the church could give him, and he was focused a whole lot more on what he could give the church. And when I say, let's give up here on the slide, I am not talking about tithes and offerings. That is not what I'm dealing with today. So don't worry. We had that message that was dealt with, that was done with. And today, I want you to recognize that more than what you can give people financially is what you can give them of yourself. See, the Apostle Paul actually states that uh, I want to give you myself. He says, I want to spend and be spent for you. That means that the Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to hold back. You know, for those that we love, oftentimes we give so much of ourselves, we almost feel like there's nothing left for ourselves. 
right? If you outgive what you've got to your spouse, to your kids, and they're not giving back to you, what do you have to live off of? The problem is when we are convinced that the only thing we can receive is from other people. And that's when a parent fails. That's when a spouse fails. When they are convinced that if I give to my spouse everything and my spouse doesn't give back to me, then what am I going to receive? Where do I receive it from? Well, as you're sitting in this congregation, as you're sitting in this room, as we have our Bibles opened, do you have an idea of where you can receive from? If you're going to give constantly to people and people are never going to give back to you, where can you receive from? What's the answer? The answer is obviously Christ. See, look, when you receive from Christ, then there is a never-ending flow of grace and mercy and truth and love that will withstand all tests this life has to throw at you, that will sustain you through all tribulation. God gives to you every day. We're told in the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah that God lifts us up like eagles with fresh wings, like a young man who's able to keep going, keep running, never ending. God wants you to be renewed. God wants you to be refreshed. But stop looking to be refreshed by people. People fail you. Instead, be refreshed by God. God will never fail you. And how can you give back to people even when people don't give to you? Well, you can do that because you have a never-ending receiving from God. And my challenge to you is don't think so much, how can I give to people what I do not have? And instead, consider this. How do I pass on to people what God has given me? Because we are limited, are we not? We do have a point where there is nothing else for us personally to give. And folks, when you've reached that limit, recognize you limited yourself. God did not limit you. God is unlimited. And if you've limited yourself, you have only yourself to blame. So I want you to now take a look here. And uh, we're going to begin now in verse 11. Thank you, guys. I am become, by we're in chapter 12. I'm sorry, I didn't clarify because we were in the last chapter. So chapter 12 now, verse 11. I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I, beca- am I behind the very chief apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. The apostle Paul starts off this section of his text stating that I have been everything I could be to you. You have received from me everything I could offer you. He says you've been as good of a church as you could be. I mean, what has God not given you, he says. God gave you the wonders, the signs, and the miracles through me that when I was present with you, I was able to accomplish great things, not because of me, but because of God. These were gifts of God to your church. God has blessed you greatly. He says, in what, in what way, if you, since you like comparing everyone, compare yourself to other churches, what do they have that you don't have? 
What have they experienced that you have not experienced? He says, you are not below any churches. You've received the best. He says, there's only one way that you fall short of other churches, only one thing that you have not uh, experienced other churches have experienced, and that is, he says, I've taken nothing from you. Other churches, they support their spiritual leaders through tithes and offerings, not you. He says, I didn't ask anything of you. I didn't ask for tithes. I didn't ask for offerings. I didn't, I didn't take money from you to support myself. When I was among you, I was supported by other churches and through my own labor as a tent maker. He says, this is the only way you are different, less than other churches. You're not tithing to support your spiritual leaders. And he actually says here, which is kind of interesting to me, he apologizes in verse 13, forgive me this wrong. He says, forgive me for not requiring you to tithe. Forgive me for not teaching you to tithe. Why would the Apostle Paul need forgiveness for that? Because it is an area of training he did not offer the Corinthian church, and their lack of giving spirit affects their spiritual condition. So the title this morning is Give. Let's give the Apostle Paul an example of that. I see, number one, a needy church, number two, a giving leader, and number three, a cautious hope. Number one, a needy church. We just read these texts, these verses, how the Apostle Paul says, you were nothing less than other churches. You had me. God gave me great opportunity to minister among you. In verse 14, he says, behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. What does that mean? He says, I didn't take an offering of you when I was there. I apologize for that, but I'm still not going to take an offering of you when I'm there later. The Apostle Paul recognizes that this church has an issue, that when someone asks for money, this church thinks that's all they love is money. And the Apostle Paul apologizes. He says, I'm sorry that I was not able to help you overcome this blinder that giving to God's kingdom should affect how you see God's people. I haven't been able to help you overcome that, but because I haven't, I'm not going to ask anything of you. Our relationship is too precarious. I'm, to, I'm concerned that if I did teach you that now, you would just run to these false prophets that I've been warning you about for chapters. So I'm not going to, when I come back, ask for any money from you. He says in verse 14, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul basically says you're not ready. You're not spiritually mature enough to handle this deep truth of sacrificial giving towards those who, who are there in your life. You know, a parent doesn't ask their three and four and five-year-old to give towards the family. A parent asks a three and four and five-year-old to, to follow mommy and daddy, to do what they're told, to eat their food and to be in bed. And, and, and there's basic stuff. They are not investing in the family. But once that child hits 14 or 15, you better have started training them to give back. Because if you have not trained them to give back, they're going to be out of your house real fast and they will be clueless on what sacrificial giving looks like. They will think that everyone owes them. It's called entitlement. Whose job is it to break your child of entitlement? It's not mine. It's yours. Parent, your job is to break the entitlement of your child. No one else should do that for you. Not saying others won't do it for you. Others may not try to do it for you. You have the first responsibility to break their entitlement. 
Because if you treat that 18-year-old like they're five years old, let mommy and daddy do everything for you, let mommy and daddy wash your clothes, let mommy and daddy pack your uh, food, oh, the car needs gas, no problem, I'll go get gas, fill it up and bring it out so you can go out with your friends. Like literally they can't even fill their own gas tank. You do everything for them. They're 21 and still live at home for one reason or another, pandemic being a very good reason why a 20-year-old would, would still be at home. You walk into the room, and it's a mess. Oh, my poor son, he's 21, has so much in his life. Let me clean his room for him. And your 21-year-old son comes home and says, wow, the maid was here. Lucky me. And you've trained your 21-year-old son to just continue leaving stuff on the floor because he believes some magical person will pick it up for him every time he leaves the house. Your son is entitled. Your daughter was given a credit card, not with her name, with your name on it. And you told her, don't spend more than this, but you never got on to her for spending more than this, so what you said didn't match what happened. And your daughter has maxed out your credit card and will continue doing that for as long as you let her live an entitled life. The Apostle Paul looks at this church and says, basically, you guys are entitled. <laughs> you think that I should keep giving to you and you should never give back to me. And I am sorry, as he's, he's a pastor, but he kind of looks himself as a parent, and he says, as a parent, I am sorry for what I've created. I'm sorry that I created this monster of an entitled church. And I apologize. Please forgive me for spoiling you. But he says, unfortunately, at this point, you're so spoiled that I'm concerned if I tried to break it now, you would run and I'd lose you altogether. So when I return, I will continue spoiling you in the hope that we can address bigger issues. And then someday down the road, maybe we can work on your entitlement. <laughs> this is a needy church. But you know what's interesting? They don't need money. This church was wealthy. They lived in a wealthy city, in a wealthy area. There was no lack of money in this church. They were needy emotionally. They were needy spiritually. And the Apostle Paul was concerned that in their void, in their emptiness, the desire to fill this void, this emptiness, they'd run to the wrong people. The Apostle Paul says, I am going to be there. I will help you fill that void with truth. This needy church, verses 11 through 14. Let's begin with our Message this morning, letter A, not all who benefit from our generosity will offer appreciation. As I was studying for this text, as I was preparing for today's message, I was asking myself, how does this apply to the members of this church? Great application for a leader, for a pastor, for our wives. Uh, if you're on any level of, of, of spiritual leadership in our church, this will hit home for you. But most of you are not on a spiritual level leadership as far as given authority in our church. And I, I try not to preach messages that don't apply to you. So I, I prayed, God, how can I apply this? And as soon as I did, God opened my mind, my, opened my heart and said, Russ, although this passage is referring to a spiritual leader and, and, and the church that they, they serve, it applies to any leader who works with people. It applies to any parent who works with children. It applies to any teacher who teaches a classroom. And I thought, there's the application. So here we go. A needy church, maybe a needy church for me, which, by the way, I do not see Meriden Hills as a needy church, okay? But as a pastor, that could be how we view it. But for you, it could be needy children. Whether they are yours or someone else's, you have people in your life that are needy, and they don't need your money. They need something else. 
And you give it to them. You give them your time. You give them yourself. Let's give. And you give. And you give. And you give. And you give unconditionally, expecting nothing in return. Good thing, because you get nothing in return. And you say, well, I wasn't doing it for them anyways. But do you really believe that? Because I sense some bitterness as you say that. Well, I'm not serving in a Christian school for the students. I'm serving for God. You know, bless Jesus. Well, then calm down a little bit, okay? Because Jesus appreciates it. Well, good thing my kids, uh, uh, you know, good thing that they have their parent, their father or mother to protect them because, you know, I'm so mad at them today. Why? Well, because, you know, I do so much for them and they never do anything in return. Oh, so your love is conditional. No, it's not. I'm pretty sure the definition of what you just gave me is conditional love. That you're upset that your love is not returned. That's conditional love. Unconditional love not only states, believes, and lives out this fact. I give to you. I truly expect nothing in return. If you give something in return, you know what? Praise the Lord. But I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing no matter what you do or don't do. That was the Apostle Paul. He loved this needy church. He not only expected nothing in return, he basically stated, I'm not taking anything in return. I didn't take anything before, and I will not take anything again. Has God placed needy people in your life? Are there people in your life who don't even offer appreciation for what you do? Are they your own flesh and blood? Have you married this person? Give them love, unconditional. Keep offering it. You can't change them. Their change will occur when they open themselves up to the power of God in their life, the love of God in their life, the direction of God in their life. And your love can be the one that leads them to that power. Your love, unconditional love, can be the thing that guides them to that lighthouse. But your bitterness, your conditional love will push them away. The Apostle Paul says here, he says, hey, I've, I've, I've given you everything. Uh, he says in verse 12, signs and wonders, all these things I've accomplished. Verse 13, he says, where have you been inferior? What have I not offered you? What, I, what have I not been to you? Verse 14, he says that um, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, I still will not ask anything of you. But I want you to turn to verse 15. Look at this. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the what? The less I be loved. That seems like the, the, the definition of almost every parent of a teenage child. Almost every teenage child, it seems like the parent, the more they love them, the less love the teenage child returns. Not all. There are unique scenarios where that does not play out. But a lot of times, the parent feels like the more I do for you, like the less it seems you love me. The more I offer you, the more I sacrifice for you, the less it seems that you want to be with me. Keep loving. Letter B. Those who receive the most will sometimes give the least. The Apostle Paul gave them everything. The Apostle Paul actually had a tent-making business. He received tithes and offerings from other churches. He had a job to sustain himself, so he had a place to sleep and to eat. And by the way, the Apostle Paul was a strong believer in tithes and offerings, I have no doubt the Apostle Paul offered tithes and offerings himself. In my head, I picture the Apostle Paul at a church who does not pay him, but he gets money from outside source and gives it to the church. And the Apostle Paul, the more he gives, the less appreciation he receives, and the more he gives, the least he gets back. 
Not even appreciation, nothing. He doesn't get anything back. How could that be? Well, the more entitled someone is, the less they believe they have to do anything. You are creating your own monster, as I said earlier. The Apostle Paul recognized that. I believe the heart of the Apostle Paul was to fix the problem, but now he had put himself in a situation where that problem had to be fixed at another time. But it was still a problem that needed to be addressed for another time. Church, don't repeat the mistake of the Apostle Paul. As a leader of children, as a leader of adults, when you've created an entitled individual, they will appreciate you less and they will give less. So how do you break entitlement? As they get older, include them in the work. As they get older, make sure they put some skin in the game. Make sure they put forth some effort. In this case, practically speaking, that church should have been tithing. That church should have been in some way supporting this man who had given his life to these people. But because the Apostle Paul said no, they must have assumed and believed they were better than they actually were. Spoiled. Many of us have been spoiled by God. How is it that God can spoil us and we don't remain spoiled? I'll tell you how. Because God spoils us, but God asks much of us. And so God, when he spoils us, doesn't destroy us because he balances the excessive blessing, overflow of blessing with a constant request of service. Letter C, financial stability does not outweigh spiritual maturity. Just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're doing well. This church in the Corinthian uh, territory had a lot of money, but they were not doing well. They were a needy church. Why? Because they felt that their money was fixing all of their problems. They felt that they didn't need anyone or anything else. They had money. That was the epitome of life's journey. I've got what I came here to receive. Now I'm just going to enjoy it the rest of my life. Money. And yet it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And it is the idea that you're entitled to more money that will destroy you in the very relationships that you should be prioritizing above everything else other than God. Number two, a giving leader. So we've seen throughout already how much the apostle Paul offers himself to these people. Now in verse 15 we read, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. And though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you, nevertheless being crafty, I caught you with guile. When I first read that verse 16, I mean, I've read it before, when I read it again for this particular message, I thought, wait a second, is that really what, it, what I think it means, what I've assumed it meant in the past? Because that doesn't seem right that the Apostle Paul would state that I've caught you with craftiness and guile. Like, I don't really normally think of that as a good thing. What is he saying? I believe he is saying what that verse actually says, which is craftiness and guile. Let's get to it. Here in letter A, it only takes one to love. It only takes one to love. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't love them. Why not? They don't love me. Oh, well, that's not a requirement. Don't worry. You can love them. Well, they're cruel to me. They actually hate me. Oh, well, you know, hate, love those who hate you. Love those who persecute you. It's okay. You can do this. See, it only takes one to love. It doesn't take two to love. Oh, does it take two for a successful marriage? Oh, de most definitely. Does it take two for a successful relationship? Oh, most assuredly. You cannot have a healthy, successful relationship if both are not invested in that relationship through love, trust, respect, right? These things are important. But can you love someone and not have a healthy relationship with them? Yes. 
Can you love someone and not be going the same direction? Yes. You see, it only takes one to love. That's you. Do not start depending, uh, de- uh, having your love depend on the love of others. Do not start defining your love by the love of others. Do not start uh, deciding whether you will love by the love of others. Make a decision. You will love others. You will love all. Why? Because God loves all. In Romans chapter 5, we're told that God loved us while we were yet sinners. There was no return on that love. God loved us one way first. Then, down the road, some of us started to return that love. Still, there are as many that still do not love God. But he's always loved them. It only takes one to love, let it be. To gain what is best for another, a giving leader does what is best for another. So now we're at that verse where it says craftiness and guile. When he's stating craftiness and guile, he's basically stating, I didn't just rush through like a bull in a china shop and yell loudly truth and expect you to follow me. He says, I was a little, more, I was a little smarter than that. I was crafty. I came in. I learned your likes and dislikes. I learned your strengths and weaknesses. I learned you. And through craftiness, through the ability to be subtle, through the ability to, to recognize the ministry God has placed me in, I didn't seek to change you. I adjusted to reach you. I made the adjustment. I was crafty. And I, I did things I wouldn't normally do to reach you, like the not expecting tithes and offerings. That's something he would normally do, but for this church he did not. Guile. Again, has the idea of not in a sinful negative way, but the idea of using wisdom to problem solve, critical thinking to problem solve, and say, how can I reach these people? And what do I need to do to, to, to meet their success? You see, a lot of leaders, they're leading so that you can give to them. They're leading so that they can find success. You need to find leaders that want to give to you. And you need to find leaders that want your success. And that is the kind of leader you need to be to others. Don't take a position of leadership because it will look good on your resume. That's the wrong reason. Stop right there. Do not take a position of leadership because you get to boss people around, be in charge, and your day is better when you're making the decisions. That is not the reason to be a leader. You become a leader of children, of adults. You become a leader of anyone to give to them. And if your intention is not to give to them, you need to rethink that position of leadership. But not only to give to them, your desire is not that you gain success. Your desire is that you help them gain success. When people believe that about you, when they see in you a leader who wants their success and who gives to them, they are more likely to respond to you in the way that the Corinthian church responded to the Apostle Paul. Because isn't that what we want from our kids? We want their success. We'll then lead them for their success. Don't we want our kids to gain? Well, then you be the one to give. Because if you don't give to them, someone else will. And you can't always monitor what they receive from other people. And you can't always be sure that what they receive from other people is good for them. But when you're the one to give, when you're the one to invest, you can be sure it is for their good. To gain what is best, a leader does what is best 
for those who they lead. Letter C, leadership thrives under partnership. I have come to appreciate this truth more and more as I've been, had the opportunity to lead more and more. When I was younger, I would truly be convinced that I could lead on my own. I don't need anyone else. Me and God, we got this. I didn't need a staff. I didn't need any other leaders. I just need a lot of people who are willing to serve, and I could lead these servants. I was a leader of servants in my heart, in my practice, in my philosophy. That's how I operated, a leader of humble servants. And I tried to be one myself, okay? But again, servants. I have since recognized over the years the need to be a leader of leaders, to lead with leaders, and to allow leaders to lead with me. Because true success in leadership is not found alone. True success in leadership is found in a partnership of other strong leaders. Do not be afraid of other strong leaders. Husbands, you should be praising the Lord for your wife's strong will. She's a strong leader. God has gifted her to you, and is a strong woman in your life that makes you stronger, not weaker. Wives, don't raise your fist to heaven and say, why did you give me this strong leader of my husband? Praise God. You have a strong leader in your home. And when two strong leaders work together, amazing things happen. When three strong leaders work together, minds are blown <laughs> When you've got four-plus strong leaders together, mountains crumble before the deeds that God accomplishes amongst four-plus strong leaders moving in unity and love and sacrifice and service in the same direction. Consider what has been accomplished in the United States over the 200 years of our history. Consider uh, plus, 200 years plus, uh, of what leaders, strong leaders have done to tame the land. Strong leaders have done to lay down cities and roads. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. Consider the amazing feats that have been accomplished by strong leaders working together. Can we not do the same for the kingdom of God? Can we focus on the kingdom of God and accomplish amazing things through his power rather than just laying down roads and building cities? Leadership thrives under partnership, but you will not allow another strong leader in your life if you yourself are weak. Because their leadership will threaten you. Their leadership will cause you to second-guess your own. A strong leader, if you are a weak leader, will cause fear in your heart that this strong leader will take what you have and throw you to the side. Why? Because that happens. That's why. That's why you're afraid. It's a real fear. A lot of strong leaders do exactly that. They find a weak leader, they take what you got, they kick you to the side, and they move on. Don't ever be that kind of leader. And the best way to protect yourself is not to eliminate strong leaders in your life, but to become a stronger leader yourself. And when you become a stronger leader yourself, you now have the opportunity to engage with other stronger leaders. And finally, our third point, a cautious hope. 
As the Apostle Paul sees this Corinthian church in verse 20, he gives us the, his heart, and he says, I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. By the way, you know, I, I recognize I failed now that I'm looking at this. I failed to give you the verses for this point of partnership. You'll notice in verse 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul speaks of Titus and how he spent Titus, another strong leader, to the Corinthian church on his behalf as an example, as his voice. And so the Apostle Paul uh, embraced strong leaders, mentored strong leaders, worked with strong leaders, served alongside strong leaders, and sent out strong leaders, Titus just being one of them. Now in verse 20, he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that when I arrive, you will be in complete destruction. I'm afraid that when I get there, you will be falling into all the sins that I've been warning you about. I am hopeful that you will follow God. I am hopeful that you will serve God, but it is a cautious hope because part of me is concerned for the future ahead of you. Part of me is concerned that your future is not bright, not because it can't be achieved, but I'm concerned you don't want it. As a leader, I can see where you could go. As a leader, I can see the potential in you. As a leader, I can see that you have everything you need, all the tools, all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge, all of the skills and the ability. I can see it all in you, but I see part of you doesn't want it. Part of you keeps going back to destruction. And so although I'm hopeful for you, I'm a little cautious. Letter A. Sacrificial leaders do not always produce sacrificial servants. How many parents have raised children only to have children run from God? Was it the fact that the child was just representing the parent and the parent was playing a game and the parent was a hypocrite and the parent claimed to love God but really did not and the child just followed the parent's game and, and outrightly lived what the parent was only doing in secret? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Sometimes even the strongest and the best servants of God's kingdom still do not reproduce servants. Sometimes even the strongest leaders who sincerely love and follow God cannot achieve in the servants they've been leading what they have discovered in their own life. Why? Why is that the case? Because every person is responsible for their own choices. A strong leader is not a dictator. A strong leader is not a king or a queen. A strong leader is not God. You cannot control the hearts of those you lead. You cannot control the hearts of your children. You cannot control the heart of your spouse. You cannot control the hearts of your coworkers. They make their own choices, and not all of them will find success. And in my life, I have come to the strong conclusion that is not my responsibility. It is not my job to change their heart. It is not my job to ensure their victory. It is my job to achieve victory in my own life, to show others what it looks like, to serve them and assist them in finding that victory. But ultimately, my job comes to a wall, and I cannot go any further with them. At some point as a parent, I have to stop, and my child will keep going without me spiritually and emotionally. I cannot keep them behind the wall with me. By doing that, I am hindering their success. I must let them go further than me. And when I do, I can only give them to God. When I do, I have to recognize it is now, has always been 
but most definitely is now, fully God and no more me. As a leader, do I desire that all those in my life follow God? Of course I do. That's what I fight for. That's what I pray for. That's what I work for. That's what I serve towards. But I've had a whole lot of people in my life that have not ran to God. I don't let that destroy me. I give them to God. They were always his to begin with anyways. When you have that attitude, you are able to withstand the discouragement of losing someone you love to destruction. Letter B, the potential for destruction lies within the heart of all humanity. Every single one of us, born sinners. Every single one of us have the potential for any sin. You name it, we could all do it. Doesn't mean we all do those sins. Doesn't mean we all will do those sins. It means we all could do those sins. There is not a sin this side of heaven that no one in this room is not capable of committing. Any sin, all sins, we could accomplish. When you recognize that about humanity, it causes you to pray harder, work harder, serve harder. But it also, that reality helps soften the blow when the flesh takes over. When they do fall into that sin, you're not so shocked <laughs> because you recognize anyone could at any time. And as it's been said many times, but by the grace of God, there go I. I'm not a better person because I didn't self-destruct. Only by God's grace have I not self-destructed. And let her see, wise leaders, hope for the best and plan for the worst. There are some leaders who are purely pessimists. I once was that leader. There are, pure, there are some leaders who are purely optimists. I was once that leader. I've been both. <laughs> when I was young, I was purely an optimist. Always thought the best, always hoped for the best, always looked for the best, always expected the best. A lot of times, the best didn't happen. My optimism was shattered. So I went from optimistic to pessimistic. Well, you know what? Always hope for the worst, always expect the worst, and you'll never be disappointed, right? That's just do your best and expect the worst, and that's how it goes. Well, I lived that life for a while, and that wasn't so fun. It was hard to be a leader when you're always expecting the worst in people, and you often see what you expect. And sometimes you're a self-fulfilled fulfilling prophet. You've created the worst in someone because you expected the worst in someone. Parents, if you expect the worst in your kids, you're not going to be shocked when they give you the worst. They're going to just do what you are expecting of them. But I also recognize optimism. I was there. Just because you want it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So I found a balance in my life, and I believe this is the balance we see in this passage with Paul. He does hope for the best. He's not a pessimist, but nor is he a pure optimist. He recognizes the potential of all people because God. But he also recognizes the potential of destruction for all people because man. So the Apostle Paul doesn't look purely at God or purely at man. He recognizes he's dealing with men, but under the power of God. And so with both of these at play, he sees that God can do amazing things in anyone's life and in everyone's life. And people who were once so caught up in pride and sin that there was no hope for them on this earth came to Christ and their life was completely changed. The Apostle Paul saw that and experienced that enough to realize no one is completely without hope as long as they're still alive. But the Apostle Paul has also seen a lot of people who once seemed to be living for God stray. A lot of people who were once preaching the very truth the Apostle Paul himself taught only for them to actually fight against that truth five years later. He's seen both sides. He knows what both sides have. So in this passage, I see a very clear, I hope for the best. This is what I want for you. This is what I believe you can attain. But 
I'm going to plan for the worst. <laughs> so when I get there, if things have gone completely south, I'm ready for it. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to love you through it. But I'm not going to show up expecting that everyone's going to be clapping their hands and hugging me and so happy to see me. I'm not expecting that when I walk in, all the false prophets have been thrown out of the church. No, I hope that is the case, but I'm expecting when I get there, there will be problems and those prophets will still be there. And I will be ready for that. Why? Because I'm not giving up on you. You see, when you hope for the best and expect the best and you constantly get the worst, it breaks you. And a leader can only be broken so many times before they finally just stop leading. And that is exactly what happens to a lot of men and women. They're, they're optimists in some form or fashion, purely optimists. And the world breaks them. People break them. Family, friends break them. You as a parent are broken. You know what your child can attain. You want that for your child. And you keep seeing the opposite. It just breaks you. But let me tell you, when you hope for the best, expect the worst, and are ready for the worst, while still hoping for the best, you'll stand tall. You might fall, but you'll get back up again. It will hurt, but it will not destroy you. You will bend, but you will not break. So I challenge you as a leader, have a combination of both. Optimism, knowing you're a God. Pessimism, knowing the heart of man. How do they play out? together. Let's pray.